Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Lovely to have you along this morning. We've got a great show lined up. You're on Reality Check Radio with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radio. Oh, what a program. we got the wonderful Liz Gunn from New Zealand Loyal speaking to us, along with Steve Oliver, uh, one of her candidates. We've had Steve on before. Remember, he was the great strong man, powerlifter, jiu-jitsu, judo, wrestling exponent extraordinaire with his gym. Refused to bow down to the tyranny, and he kept his gym open, not for himself, but for the kids. There were kids that weren't having it easy in their lives, and their place that was safe was Steve and Chrissy's gym, and he kept it open for them. And so health and safety came, police came, harassed him, and he's still facing charges and got his day in court simply for doing what any good Christian person in a community would do, looking after people, people that had fallen between the cracks and the government would look after, and he's on charges for that. So he's on too because he's standing for Loyal New Zealand, and we're going to talk to both Liz Gunn and Steve Oliver about Loyal New Zealand and what is happening. And then we have a fascinating story. We're going to have Avril Drake. She's a mother and a wife. And they live the backcountry life, off-grid, and have done for some years. And they've got wonderful children who are traveling around the country, and they have a friend whose son went along, and they learned from these boys how to make a knife out of repurposed materials, pick up things and make a beautiful knife. And they absolutely loved it. Well, we're going to be hearing from April about her life and what led her and her family to go backcountry. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening. You're going to love it. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, 
or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And remember, uh, send us a text, 2057, email me at inbox at We're going to do a little politics. Oh, I'm so looking forward to this, but I have to declare a tremendous conflict of interest because I've got Liz Gunn from New Zealand Loyal uh, joined with her high-profile candidate, Steve Oliver, and let me go through the conflict of interest. I adore Steve Oliver. I just think Steve Oliver is just one of the great guys, and so it's very hard uh, for me to interview him. And you would have heard Steve Oliver come on our show when he kept his gym open, despite government departments, politicians, the police threatening him and his wife, threatening his livelihood and his business. He kept it open. He kept it open not for himself, but for the kids. And he did that for kids, some of whom no one else would help. But Steve and his wife do. And he stayed stayed open for them. Well, you never forget that. And so Steve Oliver has my utmost respect. He's also a big-time macho man fighter, which you've got to respect. But what I love, I mean, he was a world champion powerlifter. He's a wrestling guru. He's a jiu-jitsu black belt. He is amazing. But more than that, he's a great teddy bear underneath. And so when you get to know him, that teddy bear just gathers in my affection, actually. And then he runs a jiu-jitsu competition throughout New Zealand. He and his wife travel up and down the country putting on a jiu-jitsu competition for the kids and for the adults. And my kids go along, and it's honestly the highlight of their year to go along to a Steve Oliver competition. And he's so great, and he's helped me in the competition about how to be a better dad on the sideline. And then on top of all of that, More than any one person, Steve Oliver has helped me find my Christian faith. And so that is a big conflict of interest to be interviewing someone with whom you have that much respect for. I want to get all of that out of the way. I'm a number one fanboy. Liz Gunn, I've known a long time, not as a friend, but I've known her because you'd go into TVNZ and there she would be. And she's always warm and she's always human. And to be honest, you could count on the fingers of one hand the number of people I meet in the media who that would apply to. Liz was one of those. And then she didn't need to do it, but she spoke out. She used her fame and her status to speak out against what the government was doing. And that's a brave woman and a bold woman. And she has started a political party called New Zealand Loyal, Steve Oliver, bless his cotton socks, has joined her and is standing in New Lynn. 
And with all of that palaver out of the way, I'm going to try and interview them. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, brother. Thanks for the great words. I, well, abs- I absolutely loved your intro on Steve, Rodney, and, and I just I just back up every word. This is a man who's been to hell and back, and I yes. know as a friend the, tough, the toughness he's had to have to endure what he's endured. And, you know, when you hear a dear friend whose qualities just shine but you haven't seen them acknowledged out there, when you hear that acknowledgement, man, that is a powerful opening, Rodney. I really salute you for it. Thank you. Well, I feel as though I have to, to be fair to the listeners, because this isn't an ordinary interview for me, because, you know, I have a lot of, res- I, well, you heard, I have total respect. And um, if Steve Oliver rang me to do something, it's done. Um, because, yes. Now, Liz, let's get down to brass tacks. Oh, my goodness. Everyone talks about politics. Everyone complains about politics. Everyone knows what everyone should do in politics, but not many people stand for politics or even get involved in politics, and not many people start a political party and put themselves out there. How is it that you ended up starting a political party? Tell me the journey. I'd add one more, not many. Not many people think of starting a political party, what, about two and a half months out from probably the most important election in the mm. nation's history. And not just in our nation's history, Rodney, but um, without any sense of hubris, I'm getting messages every day from overseas saying, we in Canada are watching. We in Israel are watching. Sure oh, wow. as eggs, we in Australia are watching. Please, New Zealand, do this pull down the globalists, get the globalists out of New Zealand, and I reckon Australia will be next, Canada next. So this is a country coming together in a people's movement, doing it for the world, and that is not an exaggeration. So how did it come about? I did an interview with Winston Peters earlier this year that's helped reinvigorate Winston. <laughs> I have to laugh. <laughs> I love I love the sense of irony that the universe has, Rodney, because I was desperate. I thought, who is out there who will really save us from what is being rolled out in our little country? And more and more when I researched, it looks like New Zealand is one of the petri dish countries of the world. What I mean by that is they they roll out experimental ideas here first in our beautiful country. Who are they? They are the globalists who are behind the paid and sold out puppet politicians that now infect all of the world's parliaments, all of the world's uh, so-called democracies that are no longer democratic. And Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, this is no conspiracy theory, he has skited, and you can look it up online. We have people in every government around the world. He's very proud of that. It is completely corrupt. It is utterly treasonous that people voted into power should then offer all their service, not to the people who voted them in, but to some shadowy figures behind them who have inordinate amounts of money and are willing to buy them up and tell them what to do. And these puppets go, yes, sir, no, sir, while lying to us, the people. So that's where you begin. It's a very painful beginning in the research. You begin by going, my government is not serving me. Beyond Just that, interrupting you, Liz, this is a wonderful exposition. 
of your position. When did you become aware that there was a globalist influence on world politics? And you use the word puppets. Um, I would sort of use unwitting fools to sort of make it more gentle where you have the UN and these world bodies who come up with policies and it works its way through the bureaucracy and through the politicians and then it becomes the de facto position of Western countries all around the world. Every Western country has these positions that they adopt on climate change, gender ideology, sex education, you name it, it's there. And there's no denying that. Now, um, when did you become aware that this was a happening thing? I think for many of us, we came into the pandemic realizing that things were odd in the world. Even back at 9-11, Rodney, I was on breakfast. I was fronting the breakfast show that morning. And I did say this in another interview. I do remember saying to my producer, on the speaker, what just happened with that third building? How can a third mm. building just collapse? This mm. makes no sense. And then, of course, we watched, you know, Colin Powell lie to the world and say, you know, here's an excuse to start a war. There were a lot of question marks for me in those last two years in mainstream media. That was um, at the beginning, the sort of turn of, of the century was, <laughs> was when I was last in mainstream. And I left very disillusioned with mainstream media but not realizing the political influence over it at that time. I think many of us came into the pandemic and began deep research. It was obvious something was going on when you looked at how Jacinda Ardern's language was the same as um, Trudeau's language up in Canada. It was freaky, wasn't it? It was freaky. It was freaky. Yeah, all of that. And then you look back, you then have to rewind and go, oh, Build Back Better was the same around the world. This mm. is coming from someone. This is lockstep. This is managed. And, and what I was saying before is you realize, wow, they don't actually care about us, the people. And then you have to go one step further. And I tell you, Rodney, I remember that morning I was researching like crazy when the mandates were first rolled out. It was three in the morning, got up to make another cup of tea. I was, I was looking at things and I went, I must be going, I must be going crazy to think that Jacinda Ardern is actually in there to hurt the people of New Zealand. It can't be the explanation. That can't be true. No human being could be that cruel and de divisive and devious. And that was where the research led, all of us. This is a government that is not only not serving us, they're willing to hurt us. And for many people who don't yet want to wake up, that is just a step too far because we've all been brought up to trust the system. And on the positive side of that, one could say, what a painful but crucial wake-up step for people to go from a kind of adolescent trust in mum and dad up there and the government will know what mm. to do and I'll leave it to them to being mm. fully realised adult, responsible individuals who say, I'll put you in government, but you damn well better honour me and you'd better honour your promises and you'd better do what you say and you had better front up to us every night and be questioned by us. And that's what NZ Loyal wants to do. So back to your question, how did this come about? So initially I thought Winston will save us. I'll do an interview. There's this speech. I'll, you know, I'll pin him down. And, and I'm not going to say more than this. 
But I always look for tiny things, Rodney, that, that expose who someone is. So in that interview, I wasn't completely beguiled by him. He's deeply charming. He's, he's a brick. You almost love being conned by Winston. I love oh, it. Yes. He has a twinkle. He has a charm. He has a smile. My father stood up for him when no one would listen to him on the wine box. I know Winston of old and I know exactly who he is. And I wanted to believe him that day of the interview, but I put in some commitments from him that we can clip out. There are cuts that are there that, you know, he will not fall for the whiff. And um, there are other things. But one of them was, would you meet with Casey Hodgkinson? 23 years old she was when her life was completely ruined. She spent two years fighting to have her, her injuries acknowledged. The last time I think she was in hospital, a doctor shook her by the shoulders and said, stop pretending. She's been gaslit beyond anything. She's like a little angel. And I said, please, Winston, meet with her and Rob Martin, both in wheelchairs, both deeply injured. Please meet with them now so that I can get them ACC. Use your influence. So I rang him a few days later and I honestly put a little prayer up. Please let him be not the Winston of old. He's a charmer, but he'll promise and then he will go back on his promises. And that is his Achilles heel. And many Kiwis know it. And I rang him and said, I need to bring the cameras around. I'll get them around to your place. We'll film it. This will be really big for the, for the jab injured community. And he stopped me halfway through and he said, Oh, there's a fire over there. So I went, I went with it. I said, okay, let's go with the fire. And we talked about the fire for five minutes. And then what I fire? said, what fire was he talking about? There was apparently a fire on the other side of the water. And I know he's got a beautiful view across the water. So it okay. may have been plausible. So I went with that story. But, you know, I'm dogged, Rodney, if you haven't noticed. So I came back and I said, okay, now, now, Winston, can we just make a time to bring them? And this was it. This is the moment. He said, oh, there's someone at the door. And that, and that was a really hard moment for me. I don't need to say more. People are smart. I leave people to make their own assumptions. But that was a moment that was very telling. I left it for another three days and rang back. And I'm, I'm not proud of this. I now was resorting to appealing to self-interest. And I said to him, Winston, there is a massive electorate in the people who have been betrayed by this government, who've been injured, who have, who have got family members who died, who've lost jobs and homes and families. You really need to honor this. Please, would you meet with Casey and Rob? And he said he would get back to me. Now that sits there and he can roll them out now for his own political means. But what would have counted to me more than anything would have been that that first day he said, absolutely, Liz, I gave you my assurance that I would in that interview and I will do it. Now, if it's done, it's done for politicization and exploitation. And that, that is not, that's not a good look for me. So I leave that with the public. Secondly, uh, this is getting back to your question. I looked at Sue Gray and Brian Tamaki and whatever else you think about the story that was done on Counterspin Media. Um, I know this is a journalist. It was an excellent piece of investigative journalism by Samantha and it warrants full research. And on New Zealand Rising, which was a group of supposed freedom leaders that I was part of, I challenged Sue bravely and not many people supported my challenge. I said, Sue, you must look at this as a leader. You must deeply investigate because we can't have somebody saying, I'll stand up for the freedom community who, who is implicated in taking any funds at all, even for a jab tent from the government. I mean, the jab tent excuse, where does all that DNA go? All of that was DNA. It's I'm sorry, I don't, I, let's not get, so 
It's it's ended it, up in some in some database overseas. So yes, that no, but was, I just that not, was a I'm, risk. I'm not yeah. aware of that story. Oh, I'll I, tell you. So I, but, I no, felt no. there was a story to investigate with Sue. So I I felt okay. no, I can't trust but that. Let's not. Matt King I get the Winston five. one. Let's put yeah. Sue Gray to one side. And then you Matt can, King had five people walk out. So so, yeah. so you so I'll, I'll leave all that aside. Yeah, I you was, concluded I was, that there was no other party that would gain yeah. your support and trust to do the job. That was it. I was lying there for sort of three mornings going, there has to be someone else who will stand. I thought of you. I actually mm. thought of you and saying, Rodney, you're experienced in this horrible world. You stand. You're decent. I was thinking, who? Who will stand and just get a group of real Kiwis? And so after the third morning, um, I actually I actually thought I will I'll take a risk. I'll put out a call and I'll say, if we can get 500 people in one week, 500 in one week signing up, I will do it. But I thought it'll never happen. My son said it'll never happen. It took Leighton Baker three weeks to get 500. So I put the call out and we got 1,700 signups in 24 hours. Oh, my goodness. That was when I thought, okay, Kiwis want something different. They don't want politicians. They want representatives. They don't want game players. They want really honest and raw. And we will be that because, Rodney, we're building it from the ground up. It's number eight wire. None of us wants to be a politician. That is my first port of call with anyone I'm shoulder tapping. Do you want, are you ambitious for a career in this? If I get a yes and I've had one, I go, no, I think another party is for you. If I get a no, I don't want to do it, Liz. I get, I get that real, your country needs you. <laughs> it's That's ironic. extraordinary. I remember with the ACT Party spending weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> and I remember the 50th member. Right, because it's very hard to get people to sign up to a political party, but we're in a strange time when there's such a lot of disillusionment and so many damaged people, lives damaged, families damaged, and a total what's the word loss of faith, distrust. Total. I mean, I'm I'm one of them. Total. And so you've started your party, and what you're saying is <clears throat> we have had these old political parties who have always been there, follow the line, play it safe. Um, the UN is the biggest government in the world, and so if they decide something, we're all signed up to it, and away we go. And the civil service is massive, and you don't upset them too much, and they go along with the UN because that's the biggest, again, civil service and government in the world. So if they say it, it's a big deal. And what you're saying is we actually need a House of Representatives where it's not the party first, but the people first, including the people that are standing for us. Is that Have I got that basically right? It's like a people's movement. It's something quite unfamiliar to us you're you're very on the on the on the money you're very on the button with that i believe we should very rapidly um consult the population because everything with nz lawyer will be done with a listening we haven't been listened to the people have not been listened to for decades so we consult the population would you like 
that idea, I'll, I'll blue sky it here, I haven't quite refined it, but one idea that went down well in the South with the meetings we had with Logan Evans was, what do you guys think about something like a, a Swiss canton system? So you mm. just have areas through New Zealand and maybe we have 72 areas and mm. we have one representative from each area, the whole waste of money on these different parties and the theatre of it. You know, we know the script is written that Labour now tosses the ball to National and Act and they have their turn and then in a few years they'll toss it back with all this verbiage that means absolutely nothing, these expensive ads, these endless billboards that apparently National might have spent a million on, you know, polluting the whole countryside. They mean nothing. And people know that they mean nothing because there's no heart in it. What if we had one representative for each area and they meet occasionally and there's a very small centralised grouping that coordinate roads and hospitals and, you know, other things that are essential with those representatives. But those reps have to walk down the streets of their local towns and somebody like Steve Oliver comes up with his lovely big muscle body and goes, mate, you're betraying our people and we're not mm. having it. You need to come to a meeting tonight and you need to answer to us because we're not paying you to do this. We're paying you to represent us. Come and listen. They would listen because they're deeply answerable then. They're not locked away in Parliament and they're sure as hell, Rodney, not going to be subject to some overseas trillionaire coming in saying, I'd like to give all of you a nice little bit of money. I mean, that is a possible scenario. Not that I'm saying it's happened, but it could happen. And you will do what I want. That's very possible in the system we have right now. Much harder when you have 72 individuals answerable to their local area. So you're right on the money. That's what we could bring in with a wonderful new real group of Kiwis who will listen to the people. So you got your five hundred members plus seventeen hundred and twenty-four hours, which is extraordinary. And you registered the party. Now, I follow things a little bit on Twitter. I don't tweet or X or, but I understand there was a kerfuffle with the registration process. Tell we're us having about that. Yeah, we're having lots of we're having lots of I call them now little hiccups, and I think it's a sign that we are a definitely not anywhere within their system and B, that they very much want to stop the people's movement. So we had an odd request. Somebody had driven down all the forms. We'd gone above and beyond. We even had a certificate for the um, online electric elec um, electronic signatures. We had a certificate of verification we'd added in. Nope, we got something back saying you must, you, you're the only party we're asking this because we know no one else was asked, you must have handwritten signatures for every one of your members. At that point, Rodney, um, I said to the little team we have, I am so sorry you've spent hours and hours getting it all right. This is unfair, but we either sit around and cry into our sleeves and we, and we appeal that will take time. We're against the clock. Let's just tell everybody and ask them to get them back. Within two and a half days, we had them all back, all of them. Wow. People just poured the documents back to us. I have a young guy in the team. He's 26 years old. He didn't particularly want to be involved in all this. He has a standing desk like some of those young guys like standing. It's better for you, apparently. I, I'm not kidding. He stood from 8 in the morning on the Tuesday, and he finished at 4.30 on the Wednesday, 
He had a couple of walks into the kitchen for breaks, but he just worked and worked. He went over every single detail and we put in 50 extras. So 550 forms were driven down on the Thursday. On the Friday, someone rang from the electoral commission and said, holy heavens, you guys, we've gone through 550 forms. We've found one minor fault with one form. And the guy even took pity on us in there. He said, you know what, I'm going to help this get through. And I'm sure there was there was a lot of political pressure saying, mm. is there any way we can stop them? But that is the dedication of of any loyal Kiwi. And and I ask that of everyone who comes up to me and says, Oh, thank you for doing this, Liz. I go, No, 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 no. You're doing this for me. I'll do it for you, but you better you better do it for me as well, because we're in this together. No what one I, what I what I take out of this, Liz, is that you have with New Zealand Loyal, developed or and attempting to develop a grassroots movement. So the normal questions that I would ask aren't the right ones to be asking because it's not about a long list of policies and a pledge card commitment because what, again, I'm reading into what you're saying, what you're saying is it's a style of representation and the style of New Zealand loyal, and it's different. It's not like here's a party, here's our six policies, here's our list. No, what you're saying is we're people that are going there on your behalf and um, we will be coming back to you. It's a, It's completely foreign to New Zealand. It was what our parliament was originally absolutely have i got that right you have got it oh that's funny because i decided not to look at your web page ahead of this interview because i thought well i'm going to be like a a listener and just ask uh the questions now could i could i add one thing and people say oh you know all these small parties have got doing it from ego and steve i want to bring you in here and, and reply to what rodney just said you know what we're about but None of us is doing this from ego, Rodney. I, people I ask, they they groan, and I love it when they groan because mm. I say to them, uh, and this is the, you know this is a big part of what's shaped me. But I say our forebears went off to war; they went overseas to war. We are in a war; we're in a spiritual war. You're lucky you get to fight this from your home, but do not doubt this is a war, and it demands incredible sacrifice. And I am asking you to sacrifice. And every single one of them has stepped up. And what's even more beautiful, Rodney, a lot of them are the warrior males that, you know, it was good the women stepped forward early on. We could see that this was out of balance and that it was wrong and that it was being led by a woman who was betraying everything that a woman should do, um, which is nurture and honour and look after the people when she's put in office, God, even more so. But she did none of that. So the women led, but now these incredible warrior men across New Zealand are stepping up and asking me, can I stand? And there is something so magnificent about that in terms of rebalancing, because we should always have had 
men defending us from these mad UN policies, these World Economic Forum policies, these weak politicians who are lying to us. Real men stand up and go, you don't get to hurt my family, my kids, my community. How dare you do this to my country? And we are getting back to that, Rodney. It's way bigger than any one person, and it's much bigger than a political grouping. Do you agree with that, Steve? Is that fair to say that? Yeah, just, you know, what I uh, really stands out to me is just the whole uh, business model of decentralization, get it away from a small group and split it up throughout the country so everyone's got a say. I, um, yeah, really love that model. And, you know, it's been obvious for a long time there's just been zero accountability through our leadership. And, uh, you know, they just promise about this time uh, of the you know, of the uh, cycle, they come out with all their promises. And, uh, you know, just it's basically just a spear, it's just a pantomime <clears throat> where they come out and promise the world. And then there's just, uh, you know, what I mean, I voted for Winston, <clears throat> you know, election before last. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it almost makes it worse because Winston actually does know what's going on. And, uh, you know, he, he really campaigned hard on that election in particular around immigration. And I thought, you know, we do need to cap our immigration, just t- put Kiwis first and, you know, put the practical, there's nothing against Im- immigrants coming through, but we just need to look after New Zealanders and put in a practical system of uh, application and, and slow things up and just uh, take a look at things. And he was, you know, he was all on board with it, you know, and then he signs the um, UN Immigration Pact, which is basically an open doors policy, which is just an absolute 180 on what he policed, uh, you know, what he campaigned on. And, um, yeah, it's just typical, isn't it, of these guys in suits that are so-called experts. I've got to say, Steve, listeners can't see this, but you're all spruced up. I wouldn't have recognised you because <laughs> you've normally got a hearing mop <laughs> on your head. You've normally got, uh, well, probably for you, one day's growth, but for a normal person, <laughs> three weeks' growth on your on your beard. Yeah. And there you are, and you're scrubbed up. And, like, um. You're taking this seriously, man. Yeah, oh, well, this is just a just a different look. I've just hit the, you've just caught me, uh, you know, straight after a shave. But um, <laughs> I mean, it, it is. It's a it's an important time. I mean, uh, you know, I stood last election. I knew things weren't going uh, right. I, you could see it, the writing on the wall, the way the country. Who was did you going. stand for last time? Uh, Advance. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know. I mean, the Freedom Party, uh, the Freedom Movement. It's an easy, it's an easy uh, target to uh, infiltrate and you know put in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. To really uh, blow it apart with uh, trolls and stuff like that. So it's an easy target, and and that's what happened there. And but I mean, I 100 percent believe in what they were standing for at the time, which is just uh, basically the same thing. Get the you know, these mandates and just, you know, stripping New Zealanders of their human rights. I mean, Did you ever think in your life that you'd be standing for Parliament? (laughs) Uh, Honestly, mate, uh, you know, never in a million years, to be honest. And uh, it's just, it doesn't interest me in the least. I've got no desire to, you know, be turning up and debating stuff or, you know, like, it's just... You know, I'd rather I'm really hands on, and I love working with community, and I love, you know, sport. To be honest, but um, it's it is it's, it's a crucial time in the, in the history's uh, 
in our nation's history. And I think it's time that we stand up and we actually, you know, say what's right and we try and do our best to change the change the route in which we we're following, which is just stripping our rights and just, you know, basically just destroying our country. And it's well, not. Here's the thing from the outside looking in, that we you're two people who have been severely tested on your principles and your beliefs, and you've come through. So you didn't buckle in what you stood for, nor did Liz. There's no politician I know that doesn't buckle. The only thing that amazes me is how easy they buckle, like Winston. Yes. Um, so you've got that going for you, but do you feel green and naive and the process of politics, if, you know, when you or if you make it to parliament, mm. the bureaucracy and the politicians will gobble you up and spit you out? I mean, 100%. You know, I'm no politician. But, you know, I, I love the community and I'm going to stand for the community. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not here. Uh, you know, I, I have real-life experience. That's what these guys in suits haven't got. Hardly any of them ever had a job, held down a job. Most of them probably still live at home. I mean, they've got no real, <laughs> they've got no real life experience. In all honesty, you know, they don't know how it works in, in the community. They've just gone to school and they've been indoctrinated, and then they come out with this ideology that's absolutely, uh, you know, it's, it's fairy tale. You know, everyone's going to drive an EV, and we're going to, you know, everyone's going to become a vegan. And I must admit, you're so right. I mean, when you look at um, James Shaw, Christopher Hipkins, Jacinda Ardern. You and Grant Robertson, you literally feel looking at them like it's a university students' debate and their level of thinking, and then their ministers are even worse. It is literally fairy tale stuff. And at least I feel with Christopher Luxon and David Seymour and their crews, there is a bit of more realism. Um, but I feel as though they're a continuation of what we have, not addressing the deep cultural malaise that we all feel, and I can't forgive them for mm. what they did to the country, what they did to us, the opposition to me, are more culpable than the government because the government had to make choices and they made the wrong ones. Mm. The opposition could have opposed, but yep. they signed up willingly and enthusiastically, and to me, that was unforgivable. Liz... Taking back I just want I just want to say a couple of things. Good luck to anybody trying to 
uh, gobble up Steve and spit him out. I don't think they'd have a chance. It would work the other way. When Steve gets in, if somebody comes in to try to intimidate him, he will definitely leave Steve's office knowing that ain't going to work. And somebody eyeballed me in Golden Bay when I went to a small meeting there and asked me a very important question. Rodney, it's wonderful when you go to small meetings with these smart, smart Kiwis. He eyeballed me and said, Liz, what are you going to do when you get in there and you get you get the call or you get the visit? I knew exactly what he meant, but I said, tell me what you mean by that. And he said, well, some bureaucrat from the back room comes in and says, hey, Liz, this is how it's run. This is how we do it around here, and you will comply. And I said, it's very easy. Because I am going in there for one reason and one reason only, to serve the New Zealand people, I am happy to put it on the line straight away. I will immediately ask if I can record the conversation. And if I can't, they can't stop me from going straight out from there and doing a piece to camera, Rodney, where I say, so this is how parliament works. Mm. You get in there and in week one, they come in and they try to intimidate you and say you'll lose your job. Well, I will lose that job over that call. I will not be blackmailed. And that's mm. why this party scares them. That's why all the people I'm shoulder tapping scare them so much because we are in it for one thing and it is for New Zealanders. I know Steve didn't want to do this. He's got young kids. He's running all those things that you you outlined at the beginning, the tournaments and the, the gym and helping so many people. And I know what a sacrifice this is for him and Chrissy. When you sacrifice like we all are, it's not fun, but by God, you know who you are and you won't be shifted from that. You won't. This is. I, remember, I remember when we started at, and going around in the old car, turning up to these meetings on drafty, working every hour that God gave you, and these ministers would sweep in with limos, MPs oh. would turn up, sign the taxi chit, they had millions in government funding to pay their campaign, and they were doing it for a job, and you were doing it for the cause, and it was... And then they'd stand up and belittle you. Mm. And in our case, we were declared the rich man's party. And it was like, you've got to be joking, right? And it's tough. It's really, and, really tough. And then and, somewhere they get corrupted over. Like David Seymour, you talked about people living at home. I think he still does live at home. And yet in the mandates, he was saying parents need to be forcing their children back to school. And, <laughs> you know, we have to. This is not a man who's even been a father. And I don't hold that against any man. But if you're going to talk about children and you have not had the experience of parenting, at the very least, you go out to the people and you say, I'm not a parent, therefore I need to listen to the parents. What is going on in the schools? What's going on with the mandates? What's going on with the sex education? He didn't do that. He's now part of them. And this is what worries me, Rodney. But, but to be fair, mm. um, and we've got no need to be. <laughs> I like um, it. But um, Christopher Luxon has kids. Right, mm. and he loses me. He never won me, but he loses me every day because my kids, my my two girls, twelve and ten, will not go to a public toilet 
or changing sheet. They will not go to the toilet at school. And they've had an incident with a grown man. Oh, no. And Chris Luxon says, I'm on another planet mm. by being concerned about it. Yeah. And it's not. Mr. Luxon, about the toilets. I'm not talking about the toilets. I'm talking about respect for women mm. and respect for the innocence and beauty of children. Mm. And you tell me that if I stand up for that, I'm on another planet, and then you expect me to vote for you? You've got to be kidding. I mean, how, how shocking. Oh, it's all about the toilets. No, it's about basic respect. Uh, Liz, coming back to you. Oh, by the way, um, I'm a great believer, and I get into a bit of trouble for this, but I'll state it. I'm a great believer that under MMP, you vote for the party that you want to vote for. Yes. That's what I'm going to do. I've got my thing about the um, party that's going to help the vaccine injured. That's all I care about because that's a level of humanity. But I don't worry about the threshold um, because I well remember in 96 and 99, the Christian parties, there being two, would never quite get to five but there'd be two and they'd get four and they'd get another one would get two and then it would flip. But there was like 6%. I can promise you that the National Party, the Labour Party and the ACT Party were very mindful that there were 6% of New Zealanders voting for a conservative Christian parties and these parties wanted that vote. And it changed how Helen Clark behaved as Prime Minister. It changed how the National Party campaigned, it changed deeply how the ACT Party behaved because um, we had Christians in our caucus and they were giving a free vote and they could speak out because we felt the need to represent voters. And here was a clear indication that there's a significant chunk, right? And self-interest as a political party. So I don't and, I mean, the way I look at it is you're thinking, well, I want to get rid of this government, so maybe I vote for National and Act because that's the best way I can get rid of this government. But I can't happily vote for them because they're not that much better. And then I say, well, I could vote for uh, Winston because I think he'll get in and therefore my vote will, quote, count. But I think he's duplicitous and I know I'm going to be very disappointed and be kicking myself for that vote. So then I say, well, I'm going to look amongst the other parties, and even if they don't make the threshold, I'm using my one little vote, which can never get an MP, but my one little vote is registering what I support, like in a referendum. So I'm a big believer in the in the minor parties. Just so everyone, I don't that five percent. That's just the two old parties ganging up on any new entrance to the club. 
and you should never buy into it. I'm just saying that for listeners. Don't buy, don't buy into Labour and National saying, oh, you're going to waste your vote. If you vote for this party, it's a vote for Labour and the Greens. Nonsense. It's your vote. Don't let them tell you how to spend it. And now, there's a lot more people on the fence right now, Rod, there's a lot of people disillusioned in the system. I think the major parties have lost a hell of a lot of votes, and I think they're all going to look towards the minor parties. I think it's... Uh, I think you're right. Very interesting. And, and and I'm not about to dish any of them at this stage. Now, Liz, you're a lawyer by training. Did you ever practice as a lawyer? I did. I practiced with Rudd Watts and Stone, as it was called then. It's uh, then it's now called Minter Ellison, and I did commercial litigation. Wow! And then. I went over and I studied, of all things, in Paris for a while. It was just an amazing year of, um, of uh, yeah, yeah, it was an amazing year for me. I think I must have been French in another life. I don't know what it is about France. Came back and the partner in my firm said, um, you know, we'll have you back, but I also have a job that you could be really well suited teaching law professionals. So I taught at university for a while and really loved having those classes of young law students. And then I went and worked for the New Zealand Law Society and realised, Rodney, I'm completely not equipped to do administrative work sitting over a desk with papers. I love people. And that was the that was the job that I was not equipped for. But I will tell you something that breaks my heart in those. But you're days, not I, my point about this is you're not a talking head. No, but Alan Ritchie was in charge of the Law Society and the integrity of that society was really unimpeachable to see what they've come to now, mm. chasing after lawyers who should never have been put, put through the, the, the trials of the NZ Law Society. It's just heartbreaking that that one has fallen as well. But yeah, no, I've definitely done And my how did you get into TV? Well, I, I auditioned for Fair Go, actually, and I got down to the last two and they chose someone who was a fully trained journalist. And then a guy, Hal Weston, came up to me and said, he looked me in the eye and he went, you, you've got something. Don't know what it is, but I'm going to give you a daytime show. And he gave me an art show. But Rodney, I was execrable. I was terrible. I was, when I used to be very nervous, I would smile all the time. So as the cameras were coming towards me, I would just have this fixed grin on my face. <laughs> And it was a pre-recorded show. And honestly, I hope the takes will never surface because they'd go, Liz, let's do another take on that. I just couldn't work with the camera. Whereas somewhere between that and what I do now, I learned all I have to do is talk from my heart, not be analyzing myself in my head. If I just mm -hmm. offer the truth from my heart, I can speak down that camera to people and it's not put on. And in the media training I'm doing with our team, it's it's actually untraining. It's saying just be a hundred percent yourself, be a hundred percent authentic. Absolutely, we're, we're having no spin doctors in NZ mm. Loyal. We will mm. have no propaganda department. Mm. If if the truth is not enough for the people, then we we engage in dialogue with the people. But we will never spin our answers to try to make us look good. The mm. people can say we don't like what you're doing, and we'll mm. listen. It's going to be a totally different beast. It's a beautiful, beautiful animal. It's a beautiful New Zealand we could birth here, Rodney. It really is. Tell me how – I don't even know how to word the question because in a way your answer is obvious. Like how come citizens in New Zealand are treated – 
so disrespectfully by journalists. Now, I can understand a journalist disagreeing with you, disagreeing with me, just like I can understand me disagreeing with them. But the vitriol and disrespect that they're pouring on citizens who have every right to state their view, every right to stand for office, is unbelievable to me. How do you, as a former person, high up in the public face of the media, understand that? You articulate that just perfectly. I, it's, you know, there's heartbreak over the fall of the legal system. There's heartbreak over the fall of our mainstream media system. So, you know, again, with research, you find out that the, the world's media is basically rooting back to two companies, BlackRock and Vanguard. And they, they get their instructions really subtly through, through governments down to them. And we know the government has paid our mainstream media, but it goes deeper than that. These are people now who must be fully cognizant that there are many injured and many, many died yes. suddenly and that it's highly unusual. Yes. You could say at the beginning, all right, they're naive. They're very poor journalists because journalism at its heart is all about investigating the hidden stories, and they didn't do that in the early days. You could say they were lazy, but now it's gone far beyond that. Now it's clear that they are selling out. And then you have to look at models from around the world where journalism is sold out. And remember, we used to look at communist Russia or yes. communist China and go, those poor people, they just have ridiculous front people lying yes. to them every night. We are there. We are there. We have a version of communist media. They will simply do what they are told, and that term prostitutes is apt. They are prostituting what was a sacred part of a democratic system. You had to have that fourth estate holding the feet of the politicians to the fire. If you didn't have that, the democracy would fall. And that is what's happening. Luckily, Kiwis are smarter and they're waking up to it. I saw the shift, Rodney. It was after I was beaten up at the airport. Uh, and it was, it's done major damage to my shoulder. It's eight months on. I'm in tremendous pain. He has really hurt me, that cop. Um, and I don't think I can ever forgive Sean Plunkett for deriding and sneering when I sent a really sincere account of what he did. That's an aside. But I went through that, and the other person who sneered was Hillary Barry. And what happened was, I didn't see her sneering thing. It was something about, oh, I feel sorry for Liz. You know, she goes into some blah, 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 descent. Isn't into that, they have smack. a phrase for that, don't they? What do they call it? It's like passive-aggressive. I don't know how Passive-aggressive, <laughs> yeah. But it's this well, idea where someone feels sorry for you, and they slip the knife right into your guts and twist it, <laughs> yes. and they do it as though it's out of kindness. And it's so transparently stupid it's like a 10 year old girl in playtime and and they do this oh look i so i feel sorry for for um <laughs> liz because you know she was a friend and oh she's just you know lost her way but she's come under the effect of evil people and you know she was always a bit suspect and now she's from, oh and, and now all this but it's like you've become a, a pee addict or something right <laughs> Absolutely. And and God what that. happened, a friend contacted me two days later and goes, 
Liz, I've just counted. I'm in bed sick. I've spent time counting 975 comments for you, one comment supporting Hillary. And I think <laughs> then the media went, holy, holy heavens, we we can't bully the New Zealand public the way we did in the lockdowns. No. They are starting to be onto us. And people really do not like mainstream media in this country in, in vast numbers. Um, and that's why RCR's got such support. That's why Free NZ Media, Counterspin, it's really growing because people mm. want truth. Mm. And that's why New Zealand Loyal is turning into a people's movement. This is not about me. This will vastly engulf everybody who stands. It's about the real Kiwis who want to leave something for our children and our grandchildren, Rodney, where we can look them in the eye and they say, what did you do in 2023 when we were a whisker away from full tyranny? How how did that turn around? Mm -hmm. And you will say, you know, I played my part. I got on the airwaves and I found the places where the truths needed to be told. And I did it fearlessly. And Steve and I will do it in our way. We'll say, well, we didn't want to, but we put ourselves forward politically. And it's did, you see, did you see old uh, Sue Gray drop that uh, information report this morning? And it said that they had 100% were, they were briefed around there was no, does, doesn't help transi transi uh, transmission. And they, no. had, they had no data on whether it affected a pregnant woman. And they they still forced it on our, our pregnant woman. How could you, how, how, how in good conscience could you inject a pregnant woman yeah. when oh. there's been no trial? We, we have a we have a member of on the team that is a uh, coroner, and he was just talking about I don't know if I can say this or not, but he was talking about, uh, you know, his his experience straight after the injections where they'd have one or two stillborns a month and he was pulling f five or more out in the first week. He's a funeral director, Rodney, and when we announce him, which will be shortly, I would love to um, link his number with you. I think sure. you'd have a fascinating interview. But yeah. he literally said to me he has spent many days in tears and many of them over the numbers of stillbirths, the numbers of stillbirths. If, if it was found to be, and this is an informational, uh, you know, report, if it's found to be true, these guys should be should be up on trial they should be going to jail this is murder there's nothing short of and of course the interesting thing about it is there have been lots and lots and lots of very credentialed and qualified people from the get-go speaking out yep. it wasn't just wackos like me and steve oliver right there were very very esteemed professors from Stanford, Cambridge, uh, you name it, uh, who were right great. There are esteemed people who have changed their mind and yeah. speaking out and still not a whisker. And then you have these journalists who write sneeringly of anyone who questions that. It is unbelievable. Did you see that the other day, Rodney? They just, uh, old Chris Hipkins came out and said no one was forced to take yeah. it. <laughs> Everyone yeah. had their own decision to make. Yeah, and my other favourite one was... Yeah, talk about insult to injury, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. It was just that putting... has gone around the world. That has yes. absolutely gone around the world. But and Trudeau right. said the same. Again, it's the same yeah. words. Yeah. And um, now tell me, Liz, let's cut down to brass tacks. 
<laughs> how are you? You've got how many candidates have you got announced? Well, I think <laughs> I think we are around the 12 mark, but I've got a number coming out this week and I'm going from here to record a whole lot more announcements. Great. But um, I'll tell you, since registration a week ago, we have close to a hundred people who are now uh, in emails saying, please, can you uh, ring me? I want to stand for New Zealand Loyal. It's extraordinary what we have. How are you managing, and I, I mean this with respect, the vetting process? It's crucial because um, we know that we have to be really careful of the government. This is a very cheating government and it has one thing left. It has no popularity. It has no trust from the people. It can only cheat and lie. So I'm getting all sorts of weird posts. There was one hilarious one yesterday, Rodney, authorised by Liz Gunn. When I get in, when NZ Loyal gets in, we will build a bridge from Auckland to Sydney. And I thought, <laughs> I'm all good with that because anyone who believes that, that's an IQ test. I actually yeah. want people to come to NZ Loyal who are smarter <laughs> and can see that's a lie. But I'm also being attacked from within the freedom movement. And that, that is horrendous. I want to um, credit. Sue Gray with putting out the OIA requests. But um, yeah, there's been a really nasty attack from someone within her grouping and it was unprovoked and it was completely unjustified. But you have to look at that and go, well, people are going to reveal themselves now. And I say to our team, you walk towards that light. And what is that light? It's a new, it's a new dawn. And we have to attract the really pure Funny to use that word, pure souls. Funny to use that word, service. They're such old-fashioned concepts. But we've my seen child. it. But yeah, we've seen it now. How do I vet? I have to go a bit now on gut instinct. I run it past certain trusted people if I'm unsure. But um, largely, I just put in the hours, Rodney, with the conversations, and I and I and I can see there's a certain um, well-researched aspect that has to come through. There is a real sincerity that has to come through. There's an intelligence. You know, would this person serve their country and put themselves? second to doing what is right to save New Zealand from these globalists. And there is some essence of that that always hits me after I've talked to people for a while, but it's hours of work, hours yeah, and hours. Absolutely. And tell me, how do you make your list? Well, I, I'm just building it and building it with people that I trust and I like. And the same with the board members, just really looking for those people that – um, the, through all of the lies and all the corruption, and this is a very corrupt little country at the moment, there is still that scene from our childhoods, Rodney, of highly ethical, um, very decent Kiwis. Mm. And that's the scene that I'm tapping into. That and I suppose if everyone's on board and for the cause, not the ego, yes, it's not like, calling over each other. Probably Steve wants to be number 53 on your list. <laughs> uh, uh, Everyone's <laughs> fighting for the last of the list. Logan Evans is going, I just want to be a farmer. <laughs> but have a look at the policies, Rodney. It's amazing policies, mate. I you will. Know, one thing I, I like about Liz is she's just shoot, shooting straight from the hip. Now you tell know, me, how do I find your webpage? nzloyal.org.nz. Dot, dot, dot org dot nz, dot nz. and, and if I, 
Sorry? All the policies, all the policy statements are also up on Free NZ Media, and that's a Substack page. If you go, just type in Substack in yep. the upper bar, and then put in Free NZ Media Substack, you'll see all the policies go up there as well. We've got a really good gun policy, the Gun Club, Rodney. It's great because I'm with Jefferson. I believe Kiwis responsible gun owners should be uh, absolutely, absolutely supported across absolutely. this country. And Jefferson saw it. He said, one day America might have a rogue government. Well, they've got it well and truly with Biden, yeah. and we've had it for the last three years and probably far beyond that. But the government needs to be scared of the people, not the other way around. We must absolutely. never again fear our government. And that, and that so, 1% tax as well, 1% on every uh, interaction, you know, it's uh, – okay. I mean, yeah, I was talking to a, a friend that lived in Dubai for a long time. He says that's, they're rolling out that model in Dubai. So it's actually a, a test case that's worked. You know, everybody mm. knows you go to Dubai, you don't pay tax. They run, they roll off a five percent on every uh, of any transaction. But uh, you know, who pays? Who pays our tax if we're all just paying one percent? It's the it's the banks because they're the ones that do the hundreds of thousands of transactions a day instead of skimming billions out of our country and taking it offshore a year. The, ta- the, the the banks will be paying our tax bill. I think it's an, a beautiful uh, system, and I think you know we just if you do if you do all the sums, it's up around seventy plus percent. We're paying in tax. Well, it's insane. I, we had a farmer, Rodney, say at, at the meeting down south, put up his hand. Old farmer, lovely guy. He said, basically, now I spend the first half of my year on the farm working for the government. All that money yes. goes to them. The second half, I get a little bit. And then a lot of that is taken in regulations. We are going to lift all those regulations that are suppressing right. and crushing our farmers. But the 1% is amazing because of this, Rodney. What they want to introduce from Helen Clark on has been a kind of covert ghastly Marxist sort of communist mixture of suppression and um, denuding of individual rights and treating us all as if we are nothing and they should have the world to themselves, they being the globalist few, we are the many. Well, this goes the opposite direction. We are going to make the ground really fertile for the flowering of individualism and creativity. And how do you do that? You begin by putting money in the pockets of Kiwis. And when they've got money and they're not worrying, can I pay my food bills, which will come down because no GST, my petrol, which will come down because no petrol taxes, then they can really blossom and they can get their businesses, the mum and dad businesses that were crushed through the lockdowns purposefully to ruin the middle class. What we want to do is charge up that middle class machinery. And that goes in the diametrically opposed direction from communism. And that's why we have to do this fast. So our kids will be able to blossom as well, Rodney. Well, you speak to me. Um, we've done our hour. I'm going to have a program of, I'm working on a program to see if I can have all that. I don't like to disrespect them by saying minor or small, uh, new parties or parties that other, the legacy media won't cover. It's been absolutely lovely to have you along, Liz. I wish you and your party and Steve every success, like I will every I've got to come up with a phrase, new party, um, even the ones I disagree with. Because I love it that citizens are standing for parliament and not professional politicians. And um, so thank you for that. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. And uh, Steve, I'll see you on Saturday in Christchurch for that competition. 
Yeah, perfect, brother. We'll see you there. It's going to be oh, good. Our kids are counting down the days. It's such a win or lose or do well, do poorly. It's just such a wonderful experience. It's sort of like communion or something where all these kids and adults come together. It's a great atmosphere that you create, Steve, you and Chrissy, and the team that you have. And I know you must struggle because you go into the places where there's not the support, but you do it to build it. And I love that about you, Steve. There's so much I love about you. So we will see you there on Saturday, and our kids will be rearing to go with all the other kids there. Looking forward to it. Okay. Can I add? Can I add one thing there, Rodney? Can yes, you please. say, Steve? Can you say, Steve, where it is? Because I would say anyone in Christchurch who goes along, I went along to one of those. It's utterly joyful. You see the kids having their competition fight and then they bow to each other and then they walk off often arm in arm or shoulder around a mate. You know, they just are taught to be little men and really ethical young women and they're taught values and humanity and respect. It just fills you with joy. So where is it, Steve? Yeah, we're at the ARIA Institute this weekend down in Christchurch. So it's going to be a good, uh, yeah, Saturday. We'll kick off about, the, the kids will start about 10 a.m. And um, we'll go through to about three, four o'clock in the afternoon. It's going to be a great day. It is a wonderful day. My wife's pretty fit. And when we went to Auckland, you had over a thousand. She had her Fitbit on. And it wasn't just our kids that got her going. Her heart never went below a hundred, I think, for the day, <laughs> because there's just such a lot of <sighs> adrenaline pumping. It's like a day at the races or something. And you're just absolutely, you must be exhausted at the end of it. Oh, we, we, me and my wife basically just, stare at a wall for about two or three days straight up uh, <laughs> it's it's worth it i talking about fitbits i just just quickly i put a fitbit on my uh, my son he's got a little bit of adhd he came home with sixteen thousand steps yesterday <laughs> <laughs> three thousand's a decent day he came over sixteen thousand kids doing some mileage mate oh well they're great they're great kids and <laughs> i love it steve actually had to take me aside because um and you do see tears there, and my kids have had their tears. Yeah. Because it's not tears, just it's like it's tough. And Steve got a wonderful way with the team of handling the tears. It's not I lost so much, it's just the nervous energy, and they quickly recover. And Steve's had to chat to me once because you know I was new to it, and I got you get upset, you're seeing your kid fight. And Steve took me to one side and had some very kind words to me about how a parent should behave on the sideline. And I have to say, Steve, I'm a much better behaver on the sideline now, aren't I? Yeah, well done, mate. I mean, it is. Everyone gets excited. And it, uh, it's crucial. I mean, you know, a lot of head coaches, they teach respect, they teach patience. And and when they get in there, they, it all goes out the window. And all yes. looking at them going, this is the same guy that's talking about respect and honour on the mats, and he's yes. turned into an absolute nightmare, you know? So, uh, <laughs> I was it's, one of those dads. Yeah, it's, it's it's crucial the way we behave in front of our kids, mate, under pressure, you know? So, no, well, well, I just got could, could you Could you train some of the people in the freedom movement to have that yeah, same yeah. dignity? <laughs> well, i got to say, I, 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 honestly, I think it's just an asset to anybody's life. It's just growing a little bit in humility and resilience. It's perfect. Yeah. And dignity, dignity, yeah, dignity. towards and each other. I have, I have seen the the best behaviour, and I do a with the kids. I do a lot of sport, and the kids ski race, and I've seen some bad behaviour there. 
And I remember doing that and then going along to your competition in Dunedin the next weekend. And I walked in, Steve, and they had the cage fights, the cages mm -hmm. up. You'd be used to those gyms. I walked in and it was like horrific to me. And there's these big overgrown men sort of dragging their knuckles along the ground and tattoos. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, do you know, <laughs> there wasn't one swear word. There wasn't one tantrum. There wasn't one mark of disrespect. The mm. winners treated their opponents with respect and helped them across the board. It was yeah. beautiful to see. Yeah, we've lost it, haven't we? We've lost our way in society. Well, you're doing Steve, your we, job. Yeah, we haven't lost it, Steve. That's what NZ World is all about. I that, think there's more of us. There's more of yeah. us, Steve. Uh, thank you, Liz. Him. I'm going to get into trouble for talking too much. You're it was with, a delight, Rodney. You're thank with you. Reality Check Radio. It's been real talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Liz Gunn uh, and Steve Oliver from New Zealand Oil, newzealandoil.org.nz. Check them out. We're going to be having all the parties on. We're going to treat them all with respect because why? We live in a democracy. We've got a house of representatives. We want people to represent, it, represent us. We listen to them. Plus, as you can tell, people that are standing for office are interesting and nice to talk to. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057 or email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, I'm looking forward to this interview because I've got Avril Drake along. Mother, wife, but... Some families decide to homeschool, and I think, oh, how wonderful, how brave. I can understand this. Oh, my goodness, that's so bold. And then others decide to homeschool and take off around the country and explore and do stuff. And that's what Averill's doing. Averill, good morning. Good morning, Rodney. How are you? Well, I'm excited. I've been on your Facebook. Now, tell me, I just, I've forgotten it. What's your backcountry, what's your Facebook page? This backcountry life, um, and we used to run a page called Young Geologist New Zealand, um, and we ran that for about seven years. It's so, extraordinary what you do. I just, I just love it. But I want to start at the beginning to how you got there. Where'd you grow up? Uh, well, I actually grew up on the west coast of the South Island. Um, in Westport, and we have returned to the region. Um, but instead of Westport, we live in the back country 
um, in the middle of um, forest. And have you always been an outdoor girl? No, I haven't. Um, so I was a very conventional town girl. Um, we spent very little time in the outdoors, but I always had an interest and affinity with nature and wanted to know more and explore. So my husband and I, um, both of us enjoy the outdoors, and we were very inspired by um, a book called uh, Walden's Pond. And yes, we, indeed. Yes. So we like the idea. Who hasn't? Who hasn't? Who hasn't that has read that book not been inspired? Yeah, exactly. So the cabin in the woods idea. Yeah. Resonates. Going back, going back to the simple life where stuff gets real. Yeah, exactly. So real problems, real issues, and and reality check in the wilderness is a big deal. So you, you cannot be too bogged down by societal concerns because when you're thinking in terms of survival with warmth, water, food, shelter, those things really bring you back to um, back to basics in reality. Yeah. When did when did this Walden pond grab you? How old were you? I think it was when we were bringing the children up. Uh, we, so you we, had children? Had, yep, we've got two sets of twins. Wow. And yeah, that's been busy. Um, <laughs> so when we had the first set of twins, we thought it would be a wonderful bring, way to bring up children, um, connecting them to nature and um, grassroots education, getting them to explore the wilderness and a, a life that, I think my husband and I wanted when we were children, but didn't have. So we thought we'd give that to them. And you yourself were a high school teacher, I believe. Yes. Um, so I've worn a few teaching hats in my time. I was a high school teacher for a few years. Um, I taught art and design and then branched off into uh, technology as well and was going to be a woodwork and metalwork teacher, but that didn't happen. I left um, teaching secondary school to become a freelance photographer, and I was travelling New Zealand. Then I became pregnant with my twins, and we decided that travelling wasn't the best thing with children. So I trained as a mind and body teacher, um, mm -hmm. specialising in yoga and we eventually opened a mind and body studio from home, which we ran for seven years. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that was that we had a background in martial arts. So with the studio, we taught Kung Fu, Tai Chi, yoga swings, yoga, Pilates, and belly dance. I don't, I'm beginning to feel a little bit intimidated now. <laughs> <laughs> like, you are amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I did this next. Oh, my goodness me. Everyone will be listening to this and thinking, how is all that possible? Keep going. It, it was really just happening organically, just just following our own interests and just seeing what we wanted to do with life. And then um, we had the one set of twins that we were um, – we first tried to take them to – 
preschool, but my twins were very, very resistant. They're quite determined and they weren't going to have it. I tried them for six months at three or four different preschools and they just did not like it. So with my teaching background, I took with my husband and we both agreed that we would trial homeschool from home with the idea that at any point, whether the kids, my husband or myself, didn't want to do it anymore, we would stop. And we have reflected on that back and forth a few times over the years, but we've always stuck with the homeschool. So this is what, when they're three or four, you decided to give it a whirl? Yes. And Um, when you say say they didn't like uh, preschool, Mm-hmm. This is a funny thing, isn't it? Because you take your kids off to preschool and they want to be with mum. That's right. So I found it very heart wrenching. I, I couldn't. Yes. And, and supposedly good mums wrench the children off, off mum. And mum, bawling her eyes out, heads off to work. Mm. And kids being kids, you can pop back 10 minutes later and they've been distracted and they're sort of doing something. Mm. But deep inside you, you can feel there's something not natural about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More, on, more on you as a parent than the children, I suspect. Mm. Especially at that young age, because mm. as you're saying, all they really want is to be with mum because that's yes. the comfort place. Um, and and so that's what we did. We had the kids at home, and they they con- they were constantly telling me that that was what they wanted. They did not want to go to preschool. Yes, there were fun things that were happening there, um, but their preference was to be with me. And are they a boy and a girl? Two boys, two girls. Two boys with the yeah. first set, and the second set is a girl and a boy. Okay. So, carry on. Yeah. Um, so, so you're at home. Are you working? You're working from home doing your Pilates and your Kung Fu? and Not, not initially. That evolved later. I was okay. doing studies in naturopathy alongside having the kids, and that was one of the reasons I had wanted to take them to preschool in the first place so I could do okay. some studies. Um, but I had them at home, and we, I was studying at the same time, and that worked out. Yeah. Um, so we've been homeschooling now for about 13 years. Yeah. Uh, and when we first started, it was very unconventional. Yes. There's no one in my family and no one in my social circle who were homeschooling. Um, so there were varied reactions to that. Um, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> How far apart are the twins? So there's a six-year gap. Mm. Yeah, we had the first set and then forgot what it was like to have a young baby, <laughs> a new, newborn, and then we went back for another one um, and then ended up with two. How wonderful. Yeah, it was lovely, yeah. And when you had your second set, you were still living in a house. Yes. At home, homeschooling the first set. And presumably, you would automatically homeschool 
the next two children that you had? Yeah, um, so we're just always reflecting on what was working, what wasn't working, mm-hmm. and being quite open to changing to taking the kids to school if that seemed like it was going to be the better option. But as we kept going, we learned and adapted to our changing circumstances and the changing needs of the children and just found new ways of doing things. So the boys were actually really helpful with the babies. Mm. Um, So they learned skills like being nurturing and being helpful. They were um, becoming more mature for their own age than they would normally be Mm. by stepping up and helping support with the babies. Yeah. And what would you do for them, given that homeschooling, I'm saying back then, it's not that long ago, Mm. but now you'll notice even in quite small towns, there'll be a number of families homeschooling and they can meet up and the kids can do things and parents can share the load Mm. and the kids can socialise. What would you be doing back then for the kids to meet other kids? Well, with our mind and body studio, I was teaching Kung Fu classes and the boys came and joined the Kung Fu classes. So they were my students as well. Mm-hmm. And they would be interacting with other kids there. And in the Kung Fu, it was through Chen's Martial Arts, there's a wonderful community. So mm-hmm. they were making friends in there. We also had friends that... Um, I went through with the preschool years who they would um, have playdates with. We did spend some time with other homeschoolers in the area, but there wasn't a lot of people homeschooling at the time in Canterbury. Um, So we did go to things like planned arts and crafts. They did some um, pottery um, and some other sporting activities with other kids but really my children just love to be with me and be exploring the outdoors because that's what I like doing and they wanted to do that as well isn't it funny and of course the I don't want to talk about me so it's a rude thing to do but it's just interesting to hear you reflect because I remember when I started homeschooling I sort of had a feeling that it would be me standing at home in front of a blackboard, um, mm. being a school teacher and having them sit mm-hmm. at their desk, sort of thing. And then very quickly you realize that I saw you use the phrase unschooling on yes. your Facebook. And that's what I read about. And I quickly adapted to that. And I've had a, a daughter home from school for a few months. And I have been teaching her unschooling. And it's just hanging out and learning. Mm. And she's got so good at maths, um, you know, we'll do a little bit um, with a book, but it's just, it is getting your head out of what a school is and you're not trying to replicate a school at home, are you? That's right. That's not the point. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I have to be honest, when I first decided to teach the boys at home, being that I came from a high school background, I did set up a classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that lasted for about two days. Mm-hmm. I had the whiteboard. I had the teacher's desk, the computer sitting there, all my resources all lined up nicely. And 
all the, the children's um, materials, arts and crafts in a nice tidy cubby. They had their own desks, their chairs, but it only lasted a couple of days. The boys were just not interested in sit-down lessons, no matter how exciting or interesting I tried to plan it. They wanted to be outdoors. They wanted to be exploring, um, creating and doing things that they were interested in, not what I was interested in. Um, and, of course, those older boys, they must be, what, 16 or so now? They're 16. My goodness. Yeah. Um, so they're 16 now, and when they were 10, they started to dabble with repurposing things in their own time off their own interest without me um, guiding them or making them do it. And this developed into repairing tools. From That was something that came from me because they were quite hard on the tools with all their making things and fixing things. So I asked them, instead of buying new tools, if they could try and repair them, they started by fixing the handles and then I guided them into maybe making an entirely new tool. So then they looked at how to fashion metal and this became making hatchets and knives. And you'd think that's a terrible thing for a mother to be allowing a child to do, but that is what happened. They became knife makers. And at age 13 and 14, they started to teach workshops. And this developed into a, a New Zealand tour teaching workshops. Um, we taught workshops from Invercargill all the way up to Kaitaia and into um, Great Barrier Island as well. Wow. But I just got to, I'm just sort of, that is so wonderful. But tell me, um, is that when you took to the road or did you take to the road before then? Uh, we took to the road before then. Um, the Christchurch earthquakes happened and we lived about a kilometre away from the Darfield fault line. So f first the earthquake hit our area, Darfield, and we were hit pretty hard with the 7.1 or whatever it was. Um, our house was fairly munted. There was a large pit that opened up on the property we had glass breaking, chimney falling down. Uh, we had a large tree fall over right next to the house, a large eucalyptus. And we're very lucky that didn't hit the actual house. Uh, and your, kids, boys, your boys were young? They were, I think they were two and a half. Mm. And we had a two-story house so when the earthquake hit in the middle of the night we felt like we were jelly beans in a jar being shaken about we were literally being bounced off the ground so my husband ran through uh, through the boy's bedroom he jumped over the top of the stairwell so that he didn't get knocked down the stairs and he went into one of the boys bedrooms and caught the midia um, I then managed to go into the other kid's bedroom. So with that and the constant aftershocks, we started to question life a little more. And 
reflected very seriously on what was important to us um, in terms of our lives and for the kids. And we wanted to think about instead of going for monetary goals, um, perhaps looking at experiences over finances. And so we decided that's what we wanted to do with our children, spend more time with them, enjoy them, um, give them more of ourselves and um, live the life, live the road less traveled. Hmm. So after the earthquakes, we had no running water. There was very little um, food at home because we hadn't, you know, you can't plan for an earthquake. So when everyone started to line up outside the supermarkets, we were right there with them um, just to get basic drinking water. We did have a water tank at home and a well, but we had to pump that out of the ground. We didn't have a generator. So our water was there in the well, but we couldn't access it. And all of these things made us think about not only what was important in life, but also how to make sure that you aren't caught out again and to have these resources at home um, instead of relying on external resources being supplied. The shocking thing about that earthquake was how, and I mean, I've forgotten it now. I remember going down soon after and just becoming suddenly aware how vulnerable yes. everything is mm. and that you have your house and you think mowing the lawn is important and keeping it tidy and then a big chasm opens up in it like you can't imagine. And I remember for a long time afterwards, even though I didn't live through the earthquake, I saw the aftermath being deeply affected but funny mm -hmm. enough, I've fallen just back into the old way and you're mm. reminding me of that feeling. Mm -hmm. So I I can't imagine it in one sense because I know for people that went through that earthquake, it was life-changing. But how quickly we fall back on the, on the old ways and expect to, tomorrow to be like today. Mm -hmm. But you and your husband, with your family decided, no, this is, it, it, it does, it would make you think. So I understand that perfectly. And the fact that you can't access water. No, no, it was yeah, crazy. I mean, you just can't imagine that, can you? No. So, you know, you've even got water beneath you, but you can't get it. Yes. Because you have planned for a power outage. Yes. Um, and the other thing that happened with um, Christchurch is that people had just been um, required to get rid of the chimneys and to get rid of solid fuel um, heating. So the log burners were being taken out, open fires were gone, and the earthquake hit. And I remember reading in the newspaper about how elderly were really suffering they didn't have heating in their home. There was no electricity, and the pe and people were literally dying of the cold, the the sick and the elderly. Um, it was just terrible. My mm. husband 
did take on um, a role with earthquake, earthquake recovery for Fletcher's. So he was seeing these people in their homes and the circumstances that they were going through were just shocking. Um, and we just, we just didn't want to allow that to happen um, to our family. We wanted to prepare and make sure that we had bases covered. So what did you do? Um, so we decided that we were going to fit out an ex, uh, an old Bedford RL. So it's a flexible chassis. It's uh, the precursor to the Unimog. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it can go almost anywhere. Um, so because it's chassis is flexible, it can bend and shape itself to the land, and you can take it into the backcountry with no issues. So that's what we did. We fitted it out and turned it into a motorhome. It had all the bells and whistles, even a working full-size washing machine. So we could do, yes, a literal home on wheels. And we already had our property that we'd purchased before the earthquakes, but we didn't want to go straight there. We decided we'd enjoy being on the road for a little bit. Um, and we decided to road trip for about one year. And everywhere that we went, we made the most of each location. The kids were uh, learning about every place we went, the history, the geology, the culture, with every place that we went. And it was just an just such a rich way for the children to learn. So whether there be a lake there, they could go out with their um, inflatable raft, they could fish. If it was a forest, they could learn how to forage, climb trees, make huts, whatever it may be. And, and just give a broad range of experiences. If I took my kids out and I said, there's a lake, go catch a fish. My kids would say, I don't know how. And I'd say, well, nor do I. Right? <laughs> and then I might YouTube it. I think I got this. And oh, my goodness, if they caught a fish, then I really wouldn't know what to do, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So did you know all this stuff or did no. you have to learn it too? We had to learn it too. And that's one of the wonderful things about unschooling. It's not just the kids who are unschooling, it's the parents too. Mm. We're alongside the children and it's a really rich way to, to live together. You support each other, you bounce off each other, you get ideas from each other. And you can also facilitate the kids um, very quickly with what they need to um achieve what they want to do so if it's fishing we know together that we need to go and get the fishing gear and the raft whatever it is whip off to the shop and quickly go and sort them out and then get them on that lake so you spend a year at this stage you've only got two kids i'm thinking four kids but they were two and a half when the earthquake hit yeah, so we had the, had the studio at home. We ran that for seven years. So I've skipped a gap there. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, so we had the studio. It was home. a blur, right? Kids were a blur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that have gone on. Uh, um, so we had the studio for seven years, and when the second set of twins came on, after the earthquakes had happened, we were already reflecting on that, wanting okay. to have a different way of living. Um, and the Bedford was in process of being fitted out. So it took a while to get all of this sorted out. So when you're and, in the Bedford on the road for a year, there's four of you. Yes. Four um, so, Six of you. So, yeah. And we made the big call to get um, into the back country when my husband started to show signs of post-traumatic stress. Yes. Um, he was working in his job driving around and then he would forget where he was going and what he was supposed to be doing. And it was becoming uh, so typical that it was a standing joke about bring at work. So we thought, no, we don't need Brent to be stressed like that. And I no longer wanted to have the pressure of running a studio with four children and needing to do that to uphold a big mortgage. Mm. We thought we wanted to simplify life, strip it down, live um, live a more basic lifestyle, and become more grassroots. So it was the earthquake, it was the post-traumatic stress, it was children being four of them now, and wanting to just focus on them, um, and give them a different kind of life. So, so the business needed to go. That was taking me away from the kids at night. I was needing to whip off straight into teaching classes as soon as my husband arrived home, and it was affecting our, you know, our family lifestyle together. So yeah, then we fitted out the Bedford and the Bedford was interesting because the boys started to help with that. They were working on the electrics. They were helping with the joinery. They were helping to remodel the outside, doing a standing heel or drilling something in there. Um, we learned together how to do the 12-volt system. So I'd do the research and my husband would put it together and the kids were absorbing all of this in real time as it happened. And they would go shopping with me for all the bits and pieces to do it all. So then we had Bedford fitted out and we took to the road traveling, learning on location. And my husband was still working at that time. So he'd go off and work and then come back to us wherever we were. And we're basing ourselves around Canterbury and different places. Then he... I'm guessing you're not staying at the Holiday 10 campground and no, your no, Bedford RL. No, we did a lot of um, freedom camping. Mm-hmm. Um, so life was much cheaper. Was it scary? Yeah, night? there were scary moments. Um, there was one location that we decided to leave after the first night. Um and we stuck to places that that seemed a little, a lot more tame. Was it scary from other human beings? Uh, this particular location was. 
Yeah. Mm. Do you want me to go into that? No, 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 no. Because I, 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 I'm a bit of a scaredy cat, particularly with kids. And I guess you got the thing with the earthquake too, preying on your mm. mind. But you know that feeling that when you tuck the kids in and you tuck yourself in and you're going to sleep, you help you you need this sense of security, mm-hmm. which includes knowing what's out there. Yes, and it's often a false sense of security because you could be downtown Auckland or downtown Christchurch where anything could happen. Yeah. But funny enough, when I'm out in a paddock, I feel I can feel a bit unsafe. Uh, well, to me, being in the outdoors and in the middle of nowhere is a lot safer than being in a city. Of course. It's just feeling it, isn't it? Yeah. And Good in fact, we first moved into the back country, a local said to me, aren't you scared living out there? Because at that time it was me with the four children and I lived there for five years alone with them was when my husband had to work away. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, no, well, what is there to be scared of out there? And that's my viewpoint. Mm. Um, we did live in the middle of Christchurch at one stage, my husband and I with the younger twins. And we had about three burglaries. We also had people smashing bottles outside our property. We had constant police cars going back with the, back and forth with the sirens. We had a helicopter with its searchlight shining into our backyard looking for I don't know what. Um, and we had a couple of murders in our region, in our suburb. In Put Christ like Bird. that. Put like that. Staying in the paddock in the truck is remarkably safe. Yeah. Um, and there so was where, where, how would you choose your location? Would you be on private land and you'd get the landowner's consent or would you be on public land or would you just be at the end of a road or at a picnic area? Where, whereabouts did you base the truck? It was designated campsites Okay, where, where there would be other campers. Got it. So you weren't really alone. Um, and you, you weren't had- freedom camping as such. These were like designated places that you could designated camp. camping spots, but, which which were free, and they would have water and a toilet. Yes, got it. But we also had water and a toilet in our camper. Yes, got it. Yeah, yeah. And would you all live in the truck, or did you pitch a tent beside it? All in the truck. In, My goodness. Yeah. Gosh, gosh, that would be tight, right? With six. So there was the other aspect that my husband and I were um, probably a little bit more happy to be travelling like this because both of us have a martial arts background and we felt okay. We can handle ourselves. Well, yeah. Well, no, you can't say that in every situation, but we just felt that we probably felt a little bit more confident. So you did that, and is this when you started the? You weren't traveling around because your husband's still working. You're living in these designated areas for some years with your kids, and um, that's how you live with your husband going into work and coming home when he could. Is that how it worked? 
Yeah. Um, so when we when we lived in the camper, we were based around Canterbury, just mm-hmm. where we'd go as far as Rakaia or Oxford was probably the furthest that we went. And it was a short commute back to us. So about an hour at most to travel back to us. So he'd go to work, travel an hour, and then come back to us. And we'd have him with us every day. I got it. Yeah. And then when we lived in the backcountry, my husband actually took a job in the North Island um, just to get a higher wage. Mm -hmm. And he lived up there for about two to three years years in the North Island. He would commute down every three months for a while and just be with us for one weekend to help set things up a little bit better every time he came down. That must have been hard. Oh uh, yeah, it was hard. But the the thing that happened, which we didn't expect, is that the boys really had to step up. They they needed to help. So from a very young age, they needed to help support. And that is with things like building things or fixing structures or helping with animals because we have livestock. Um, now, you've got to bring me up to this because you were no longer now living in the designated camping area. You're now in, quote, the back country. Mm. Right? So what's that looking like? So... When we initially went there, we started out with a tent because we didn't have the camp, the camper. We had that on repairs so we could get it up to speed so we could get it over there. So that lasted for about one month. We lived in this very solid permanent style tent. Um, and that was interesting. We learned how to set up rainwater collection off a small structure, which was also our cooking bench, we washed clothes there. We even had a bath running off that structure. So we had a bath, shower, kitchenette, and um, the ability to harvest rainwater. And we stayed in that um, until the Bedford was ready to go. Then we brought that to the property, parked it up there, and that was when my husband left the North Island. So um, that was pretty easy once the, the Bedford was up there. We had everything. Mm. Um, all we needed was the structure that we disassembled from our campsite and took it to a different location on our own property. And that became um, firewood storage as well as where the wash and second washing machine was. Um, we still had that bath and the rainwater collection from that one system. And so this is a property that you had bought? Yes, we'd bought about 90 acres in the back country, um, nice. which, which included a little bit of wetland, a little bit of forest, and very little developed land. Okay. So it was bare basics, grassroots, nothing set up there at all. And you loved it? Loved it. It was hard, I won't lie. There's a lot of challenges, but for me, I thrive on a bit of a challenge. Um, I think one of the issues with being in our Canterbury house was that everything was all set up. There was nothing much to do. 
and boredom was a factor. Mm. So when we're in the back country, we need to problem solve and find solutions to um, small things that most people take for granted. Could you give me an example? Um, okay, we had a car breakdown and I only had the one vehicle and my husband was living in the North Island at the time. We had a digger. So I got the digger and I attached it to the car with a tow rope and I drove the digger and one of my older boys sat in the car seat and he helped steal the car and I took the car to the edge of our hill and we hill started it. Got it into <laughs> civilization. <laughs> got it into civilization and got it seen to. Well, that is problem solving, isn't it? Because, um, you know, it's not like you can just, eek, what do I do? Ring someone. Um, what did you do yourself for friendships? So we have a really good um, homeschool community here in the village district. Um, At one time, well, before COVID hit, there was something like 80 families involved. There's a huge amount of people here homeschooling of all sorts of different styles. Mm. Very eclectic. Um, Unschooling is really just one aspect of homeschool. Mm. Mm. And At some point, you went on the road. Yeah. So when the boys were dabbling in knife making, I'd already started um, our Young Geologist New Zealand page. And the Young Geologist page began out of an interest in the land itself. So the children were wanting to understand the geology itself, how the land formed, why rocks were there, what made the rocks, what are the rocks, and what minerals were in the rocks and how could we utilise those minerals. So we started to use the minerals, um, figure out what we could make with them, turning them into something. And then this became sustainability as well. How can we sustain these minerals? And that became uh, repurposing. So the knife making was repurposing. So when we initially started, it was all about repurposing found materials and turning them into something that you want to keep. So you could get an old bit of metal and you could shape it into a knife blade and get an old bit of wood and make a handle or bone, that sort of thing. Is that what I'm saying? That's right. Yep. Mm. That's it. So the boys were doing that and then I was – putting what they were doing on the Young Jaws page because our page was all about their learning journey. It was mm-hmm. never um, it was never about us as a family. It was really about the learning mm-hmm. and the homeschooling and sharing that. And people started to jump on board and were interested and plugged in. We got up to about 11,000 viewers, oh 11,000 followers. Oh, my goodness. Um, and with that, when the boys were knife making, people were interested. They were generally wanting to know how to do what the boys were up to. 
So we got invited by our own homeschool group to teach a workshop. So the boys were keen. They wanted to give it a go. We taught our first workshop in the Bullard District. And that went really well. It was very basic to start with. It started with two boxes of tools and materials. And after the first workshop, other people asked us if we could go and teach in their areas as well. So mainly it was to homeschool groups, so the homeschool community. This first happened in Marlborough, Nelson Marlborough. Then it went up to Takaka. And we were invited to teach around the rest of the South Island. So we just kept saying yes. <laughs> and it wasn't from us saying this is what we want to do. It all happened organically. We and couldn't you pick up the Bedford truck. No, and... we didn't take the Bedford. No. Because it was so thirsty. Yeah. You... We just took our family car and a trailer and bundled yeah. everything in including okay. kids. And you'd camp? Yes. With people? Well, it, well, first it, it all happened in winter, so we did stay in cabins initially. Okay. Yeah. Because I have a friend who son did this knife-making course and loved oh, it. Oh, right. Mm, yeah. That's how we got onto you because they loved it so much and it was – Oh, lovely. Good so, to hear. Um, and it was the real deal, right? Mm, yeah. So keep going. This is a lovely story. So after um, the South Island, um, I was getting requests from the North Island for us to go up. And at that point, I wasn't ready, nor were the boys. We, we said to each other that we'll never go and teach in the North Island. Um, it just felt like too much of a big deal for us. So second year in... The, the South Island had asked us to go around again and the North Island wanted us to go up again. So I finally said, do we want to try it? Do we want to give it a go? And the boys said yes. And I was still a little bit tentative. It felt like a big thing for me personally, but I didn't want to hold them back. So we agreed that we would do a North Island tour we booked the whole thing we had people signed up in locations all around this North Island COVID hit and then the mandates came along um, and we saw the change in New Zealand um, and we saw that we would probably be penalised if we wouldn't mandate and we didn't want a mandate we didn't want to leave anyone out. We didn't think that was ethical. Um, so we, again, as a family, agreed that we wouldn't do the North Island tour. We cancelled the whole thing. Um, despite the big following we had, we cancelled the whole thing. And I I didn't at that point say that we would come back. Um, so that was off the table for us. Um, but... When things started to lift and settle, we were still being encouraged to come to the North Island and we just waited. We waited till it felt right again. And we finally conceded we will go to the North Island and asked if anyone was still interested. 
and we just got a huge, huge result. Um, yeah, it was overwhelming. It was really hard to actually meet all the requests to come on to the um, workshops. And I hope, hopefully I didn't miss too many people. Um, <laughs> I was trying not to. Um, but yeah, I did my best. And we had a lot of wonderful people in the different regions who were acting as hosts. And they helped me to organise workshops in the different locations. And I couldn't have done it without them. It was just too much, too, too much detail. Hmm. So a real appreciation for all of my hosts that helped with the tour. And so you're now homeschooling, kids learning all these skills of resilience, and you're traveling the country. Yeah. Um, so we continued with um, every location we went to. We wanted to know about the history, the culture, the geology, um, the plants, there were different plants around New Zealand, different bird life. And it was just so such an enriching way for the children to absorb what New Zealand is. Mm. Um, and to us, New Zealand is nature. It's the natural environment. That's the special thing about it. Um, and I know there's a whole lot of things that are quite upsetting going on in New Zealand at the moment. But for sure. to, to us... This was, I don't know, the the way to heal is mm. to focus on the the beauty of New Zealand. And one set of twins are sixteen. Mm-hmm. The boy and the girl, I'm guessing, are about ten. No, they are eight, but they're about to turn nine. Okay, nine. Um, oh my goodness! So with these. 16-year-old twins, they must be very close because they're twins. Mm. They have grown up very close within the family and in tight spaces living-wise. So they must be extraordinary close boys. Is that true? They are, yeah. They absolutely are. They they are quite different to each other. Yes. Um, but they bounce off each other. They help bring mm. each other up. They learn together, and they are often often questioning what each other is doing, and offering suggestions. And it's just been a, a really amazing way to learn. I think if it was a classroom environment, they would be um, told to stop talking. But when they <laughs> when they're at home doing something in an unschooling manner, manner they are constantly reflecting off each other. And building each other up. Have they got plans? At the moment, they are studying level three mechanical engineering online. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't their the plan. This is a tool that they can put in their back pocket that they mm. can take with them. They have also been working as builders' um, hands on site at the visitor centre at Punakaikai. Um, and this was a really good job experience for them to just feel out the building industry and see if that's where they want to go. One of them is quite interested in cooking and he 
is thinking that he might like to do some chef training, mm-hmm. but I'm letting them just figure themselves out as they go and be, be whatever they want to be. And they only have two, two things that I've told them that they need to have for me to be happy as a mum. And one of them is that they be healthy and the other is happy and everything mm. else is all just extra. Mm. And you and your husband, plans? Uh, we are setting up our property um, so that we can be as self-sufficient as po- possible. Mm. Um, we have managed a six-month stretch without any income, and that is through living off what we're growing, through mm-hmm. hunting, through fishing. Um, we have had stockpiles that we've built up and we've managed to not have to have um, income apart from you know, just a small amount each week. Well, I have to say you're a picture of radiant health. And when I read of your lifestyle, I imagined sort of you worn down by the sheer physicality and hardship of living the way I have those days. (laughs) I bet you do. (laughs) And with three boys and a young girl. But you are. You're a picture of radiant health. I mean, you wouldn't look out of place sitting in Remura having a coffee with the ladies. Oh, that's way too kind. (laughs) No, but it's quite extraordinary. So, you know, good for you. Um, It's hard with your own children because they're so special. And you love them beyond all reason. But if you can be a school teacher for a moment, how are your boys? I'm thinking the older ones because they're young men. Mm. How are they different to their peers because of how they've been brought up? Um, I think you mentioned. Uh, how how did children get socialised in homeschool? So in a high in a school situation, the kids are in a classroom with 20, 30, say students. There's one teacher up the front, and there's a lot of things going on in that classroom. There's, te- there's kids talking to each other. There's work being done. The ki- the teacher is managing whoever is in front of them and helping them at at that time. They're also managing resources and trying to keep the whole class on track. So if there is something that crops up that your child does that isn't quite appropriate in a social setting, you know, in the wider aspect of society, that teacher isn't as likely to pick up on that and help guide that child as a one-on-one parent on a day-to-day basis. So my boys, when they go out into society, they've always had me beside them to show them this is this is how we behave at the supermarket, the bank, at the doctors, in the library, at the beach, with friends, whatever it may be. They get that direct feedback from me that this may be good behaviour or this is inappropriate. So my boys also, having helped with the younger set of twins, 
are very compassionate, very supportive, very caring, very helpful. They can build, they can fix electrics, they can help with fixing the car. When we're on tour, my boys um, had to deal with a broken trailer axle. It was the week. It was the weekend. Our trailer is extremely heavy. It had um, a whole workshop worth of gear in it, and it was overloaded for what the axle could handle. So they were able to get help from a mechanic who who was at one of our workshops. He helped them to fix it themselves. He wasn't an engineer, but they all sat there, the three of them together with a grinder and some drill guns and whatever tools we had with us on tour. And they took that axle off, found ways to remodel the axle with found materials, and they made it strong enough for one of our other participants at a separate workshop the next day to who was an engineer to say this is stronger than it was originally. How wonderful. They approved. Isn't that, that is so different to their peers. And that must give them, I'm guessing, a lot of confidence that they exude. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and I, I actually put that confidence down to being in a wilderness setting. Yes, and knowing who you are. Well, the reason is that when you're in the wilderness, you know that situations you have to deal with are very raw. Mm. They're very intrinsic to survival. Mm. So not that we've been in any serious situations, but they've had to combat a whole lot of things that a kid who is in a house with a TV, with the electricity at the flick of a light switch, water at the turn of a tap, is all available. But the boys have had to problem solve when these things wouldn't work for us. So they've had to nut it out and repair these things and figure out what was wrong. So problem solving, critical thinking, have all been aspects of their upbringing. Mm. so when they go out into society, they're not having to deal with this sort of thing. Mm. And it's easy. So, Well, you and your husband are truly amazing. Oh, I had one last question. Did you teach some Kung Fu? Well, in our martial arts, we're, we're told that the worst situation with a kung fu instructor and a student is between the parents and the child. It's very hard Ah. because of the traditional relationship that you're supposed to have with your students to maintain the protocols. Yes, I see. So I do not teach my student, my, my children, kung fu. Have they learned? They will learn. Good. Well done. They pick up little bits, but 
Well, I cannot be the Kung Fu instructor. No, I can understand that when I think about it. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rally Check radio we've been having a beautiful conversation from a beautiful woman and uh, with her husband have not traveled the easy path or the usual path with their two sets of twins four children but what a wonderful path and what a heartwarming wonderful wonderful story inspired by waldens on what's it called on waldens pond on waldens pond and no one can read that and not ponder about stripping everything away and going to live basically under the stars and to see the stars and to see the water and to see nature and to be close to it, to discover more about yourself and who you are. Well, Averill and her family lived that, which is wonderful. I thank you so much for coming on your show. If you want to read and keep up with Averill and her family, if you want to learn where they might be next doing a knife-making course, it might be on there. The name of the Facebook page is? This Backcountry Life. And it's a much different focus. This Backcountry Life. And we'll put you in touch with this wonderful family, this wonderful woman. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We will – oh, I hope we talk again. Thank you, Rodney. Love what you do. Okay. An inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. It's that special time of the day when I get to open the mailbag. Oh, I do so love it. I love hearing from you, people. Uh, Listeners. I love the criticisms now. I never used to. I used to take it a bit hard when I was starting out, but I know they're sent with love and care. And I true, I take them all on board because we're all part of a family and we can all be better. Uh, remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio, and I love it. Uh, here's one. Thank you for your mahi, Rodney. Blessings. Thank you. Good morning, Rodney. Appreciate the discussion with Malcolm. Oh, yes, the Daily Telegraph. He was great. Thank you for your efforts. Regards, Peter. Hi, Rodney. Love your show. For your information for listeners, if you use the Brave browser, the Daily Telegraph New Zealand came up straight away. Ah, there you go. I'd never heard of the Brave browser. Must be a browser itself, not just a search engine. A very interesting interview with the Daily Telegraph guy. So good to hear a story from someone who actually supported this government and Jacinda. Simon, uh, thoroughly enjoying your show this morning. And last week's show with Ken Ring was absolute magic. Thank you, Rodney. Daily Telegraph is a great news site. Well done, that man. Regards, Paul. It is a great news site. It's called Cowardice, with a lack of integrity inherent in all people that take up politics. Poly, meaning many. Ticks meaning small. (laughs) Small time. Polly meaning many, ticks meaning small, tiny, blood-sucking leeches. Now, hi, Rodney, Rachel here. I'm vaccine injured. I'm so sorry to hear that, Rachel. And I have spoken to you before on your radio station about my vaccine injury. We would love to you to talk to us about our vaccine injury group called Silent No More. We're very exciting things happening soon to occur for New Zealand. We'd love to chat to you. I will definitely be in touch, Rachel. Thank you for that. 
Hi, Rodney. I don't know why you still bother with Google. I got off Gmail and Google search a long time ago. Try and use Quant. That's Q-W-A-N-T as a search engine, and you won't be manipulated with targeted in advertising. So it's www.quant.com, Q-W-A-N-T. I'd never heard of it. When I searched for the Daily Calligraph, indeed, it came up as the first option. Regards, Jan. Thank you, Jan. Rodney, I'm enjoying this, the show this morning with Malcolm from the Daily Telegraph and the young man from Dunedin who wrote an article for the ODT. Odin, yeah, he was great. You're right. We're truly blessed for having these wonderful people in New Zealand and listening to the young 15-year-old gives me a bit of hope for the future. He needs to continue writing from a young person's perspective. Shelley. Thank you, Shelley. Hello, great show. Notice how they wheel out a multitude of anti-white slurs when you don't conform. There are many from other racial groups that don't conform, and they're called the same slurs. Pathetic, huh? Odin was a great guest. He was, wasn't he? Thank you, Rodney, for today's interview with Sublime. Yes, what a wonderful, gentle soul. Mainstream media labelled him a white supremacist. What a blunder, a part European. Legacy media lie, or at best does a... a Bad word, poor research. His grandfather fought the Nazi army. My father and three uncles fought in that same war. The war was to protect our freedoms. What would these pansy university-trained journalists know? They are, in fact, are distributors of lies and propaganda. That is indeed. Thank you, James. Well, I'm blown away by the insightful wisdom of one so young. Thank you, Rodney, for airing your chat with Odin. He was a breath of fresh air and gives one hope for the future of this country. Simply brilliant. Carolyn. Hi there, guys. I've chosen a new name for Mr. Hipkins. It's now called Ginger Nuts. Or here's another one from another person, Chris Hippocritting. Crick. Hang on, I've got to get this right. Chris Hippocritting. Crick. Crittens. Crittens. Something like that. You got it. Love your program, Rodney. On Hipkins' ridiculous claim about choice, there was a film a long time ago about the mafia where people were offered a real deal that they couldn't refuse. That's what we've come to. Jeff, sorry, it was an offer they couldn't refuse. That's right, Jeff, it was, remember? He gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. Dear Rodney, you're right about stupid old Mr. Hipkiss. What an ass. What was the purpose of him saying that about the mandates not being compulsory. We didn't force anyone. It's unbelievable. Thanks once again for sharing and for speaking out about how we're all feeling, Jackie. Rodney, look into Chris Pinto's Noise of Thunder radio. He gives each for tonight approximately good info on things the Weasel Brigade are planning to voice upon us. Cheers, Rob. I don't know that. Hi, Rodney. I was a first-time listener today. I watched the replay of Penny Jackson and Matthew Haig's interview absolutely mint thanks for being such a good interviewer listener and for asking all the good honest and right questions well i will be tuning in more for sure how refreshing i thought i would say a few things about Fletcher's just to give a bit more perspective on how they predetermined the outcome way ahead of that rod jackson and november the 25th date etc i worked for placemakers i was terminated i have worked for them for 27 years all up After we received the COVID-19 policy on the 25th of November, my boss, the branch manager, let me know after going to a Fletcher's manager's meeting that a 100% mandate was a foregone conclusion. He called me on the 3rd of December as I worked from home every day. Both my supervisor and boss were shocked. All managers and supervisors were told that they were going to mandate the vaccine across the whole of Fletcher's businesses and that nobody was to be exempt period. 
absolute fact. They nevertheless said they would do all they could to try and keep me. This was a heads up. Their first thought was of me, to get me an exemption. I might as well had to be working in India, I was so remote. On the 15th of December, the night before the mandate decision was confirmed, I called my branch manager and he was swearing about losing me and my experience. He said he was told he would be getting the chop if he did not let it go about me. They were defending me because I work alone at home and had done so for a number of years already as I'm living in a remote part of New Zealand, 330 kilometres away from my work base. I only go to a once a year Christmas lunch if I feel like going to it. I have worked for them for 27 years. I am employed, not a contractor. Penny was talking about my situation about three times on the year. I would be their most experienced draftsman who handled most of their high-end commercial, most difficult work. So that's my story. I guess I am a libertarian of sorts. I will never forget what this government did to me, my immediate family and relations and friends, and the damage that was done to so many of us over their wicked reign of terror. By the way, it is great to hear you've become a Christian. Best thing a man could ever do. And it is self-evident in how you treat people. Kind regards and God bless Colin. Thank you, Colin. That is so wonderful and so heartfelt. And also so terrible that a fellow human being could be treated the way you were treated by head office and by disgusting government and I include the opposition because they never spoke up for any one of us. Dear Rodney, I am currently enjoying the replay of your interview with Malcolm Drennan of the Daily Telegraph. Perhaps you could pass this on to him. I searched the Daily Telegraph New Zealand and DuckDuckGo and his website was a third result after two that I think were paid advertising. And then I searched it in Google Chrome and it was the top result. Don't know what's changed, but I thought he might be happy to know that. I attached screenshots. Thanks. Kind regards. Bombard. It's interesting because we've discovered that when we talk about something not showing up on Reality Check Radio, it literally shows up the next day. We've had this twice now. How weird is that? That we search it the night before, before we go to air, talk about it, go to air. Sounds like I'm having you on, right? And then it shows up in Google. I don't know what how that works. I don't understand any of that. Dear writers, now don't go into a swoon, but we only voted for it when you were at the helm. So be nice to our Lizzie of the gun club. <laughs> I'm taking your advice to vote from the heart. Tricky when so many good folk out there standing for the freedom parties, but easier when in all conscience, not one of the 120 incumbents have the integrity to be in public office with what they have and are doing to New Zealand. Safe and effective, my hairy bottom. The 1% transaction tax is a challenge for my wee brown, but given the likely changing payer field from global recession to dog-eat-dog, fight for survival, I'd back our Kiwi number eight wire ingenuity to make it work. Cheers, mate. Mark and Debbie. Thank you, Mark and Debbie. Uh, from Bruce, I'd like Rodney to ask his gardening guru the following question. I have a grass grub through my veggie plots, flower beds, and obviously lawn. How can I get rid of it naturally without killing the plants and without having to change all the soil, reasonably sized areas, regards. We will be onto that with Wally. 
absolutely. With respect, Rodney, this is from John. Please stop your ranting and self-grandiosity when you're interviewing. Oh, I'm sorry. I felt Malcolm Dreamer had much more to offer during your discussion. And I was hanging off every time you failed to let him offer his opinion with anticipation to be bloody annoyed with your interruption. I love Asia and everyone there, and I want to love you too. So give some leeway, please. Kind regards, John. I do apologize, John. You know what happens, I've decided, is that I'm interviewing someone and I can look at them and they're sort of struggling with an answer because I can see them. I have them on a video link. And I don't know, I try and fill the gap. You know how you do that? Too enthusiastically to help them. And I'm just going to stop and let the gap hang a little and see how that goes. And so I will take that on board. And I know many kind people will write in and say, oh, no, 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 Rodney, you're doing good. But I think John is right. And so I will try and do better and let the gaps hang a little bit more rather than trying to fill in the space with my voice. Because you know how you sit there sometimes and you feel awkward because there's a space. I'll leave a bit more space. Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone. Please send us your text. Send me an email, text at 2057. Uh, email inbox at rallycheck.radio. I so love hearing from you. And it's always wonderful. And it's wonderful to have you along. Thank you for listening today. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And I see that the Maori Party, they want to abolish prisons by 2040 and they want a separate tikanga justice system to address inequities. Te Pate Māori, I'm reading from the New Zealand Herald, is challenging Labour to abolish prisons by 2040 and introduce a tikanga-based justice system to address the enormous inequities facing this country's Indigenous peoples. Well, if abolishing prisons is a good idea and tikanga justice system is such a good idea, why wait? till 2040, because we could abolish prisons now, couldn't we? And introduce that Tikanga-based justice system, whatever it is, next year. But no, it's 2040. So you've got to wait, everyone. You've got to wait, uh, what's that, Seven, 17 years for justice. Co-leader Rawiri Waititi launched what he called, quote, a revolutionary plan to reform the justice system in Aotearoa that would tackle the institutional racism that has, quote, traumatized and failed Maori communities at every level. So um, he's got this revolutionary plan, but nothing happens till 2040. However, while for Maori, the incarceration rate has dropped, Maori is still imprisoned at over seven times the rate of non-Maori. So more Maori in prison, and so it's inequitable. So Mr. Watiti says, we, quote, are asserting our tinaranga teratanga to oversee our own tikanga-based models of restorative justice. So I guess, is it we're going to have two justice systems? So I'll go into the old system, 
But if I was, my great-grandmother was Maori, I could go into the Takanga restorative justice system. So I think it's two systems. Yeah, it must be two systems. So I'm non-Maori. I get attacked by a Maori. Do we go to the non-Maori system or the Maori system? Do I have a choice? Um, who gets to decide which system do we go in? Or maybe we don't have two systems. It doesn't make clear. The justice policy includes establishing a Maori justice authority, creating a parallel Maori justice system based on tikanga and self-governance and laying a pathway to abolish prisons. Oh, I see. So we're going to set this Maori justice authority up. It is a parallel system. You could go in one system or the other. And when the system gets up and running, over time, prisons won't be needed. Well, I think if I was a crook, well, I don't know. Would I opt not to go into the prison-based system? Waititi said 20% of the corrections, police, and courts budgets would be reallocated to the Maori Justice Authority, marking, quote, a significant shift in power and resources to Tangata Whenua. Now, earlier I looked on the webpage of the Maori Party and they said it was 50%. And I did that because I'm trying to understand the policy. But even as I read it, I'm confused. because I. Uh, so it's 50%. So half the budget from prisons and police and courts is going to the Maori Justice Authority that will be operating a parallel system of criminal justice. I don't know. Do you have a commercial? If you have a commercial dispute, I wonder if you can go to the Marriage Justice Authority or is it just for criminal? And who takes the case? Because the police don't have their budget now. So, so let's imagine this half the police are gone. I get criminalized, I ring the police, perchance one turns up, and it turns out it was someone who remotely identifies as Maori, and the police say, look, we're sorry, we're not budgeted for that. You'll have to ring the Maori Justice Authority. So I ring the Maori Justice Authority, and they say, I've been robbed by some Maori fella or a fella claiming to be Maori, and they, would, would they say to me, are you Maori? And I say, no. Oh, well, when are they? <laughs> I don't know. How do you have a parallel justice system? Are these guys nuts? Tapata Māori would also work with Whānau, Hapu and Iwi to establish a well-funded Māori legal aid services and to invest in Kapapa Māori legal units within each community law centre. Well, where's it getting its well-funding from? The party would also overhaul discriminatory legislation by stopping benefit attachment orders, repealing the Bail Amendment Act, raising the age of criminal responsibility to 16, and amending the Clean Slate Act to apply to custodial sentences. They're going to reform drug laws to treat drug use as a health issue, not a criminal one, and wipe criminal convictions for drug use and possession. So you don't know that the person that you Employed. Oh, so they get let out of jail for drug use and possession. 
and drug use is a health issue, but not presumably manufacture and supply. They're going to uphold human rights by increasing some freedom grant. I don't know how that works. And he's calling, he said he's responding to calls for married justice experts for transformative change to the justice system. Mr. Waititi says it aligns with the Crown's obligations under Titiriti o Waitangi and represents a significant step toward addressing the system, systemic racism that has long plagued Aotearoa. So there you have it, right? This complete denial of any responsibility for the individual or for the families or for the community when people commit a crime. You see, how's it going to work? Because in Mr. Waititi's world, the people committing the crime, the people that are in jail are there not because they've committed a crime, but because of racism. He says that's what they're there for. He says it's systemic racism. I think they use the word systemic racism because they can't find any actual racists. So it's sort of systemic. It's embedded in the system. They're all good people there. None of them are racist, but the racism is within the system. So the justice system and the correct systems are systemically racist, and that's why Maori people are in jail. And if you stop the systemic racism, they won't be in jail. But have you stopped the crime, Mr. Waititi? Have you stopped the offending? Have you stopped the people being attacked? He then goes on to say, we must take heed of the recommendations by advocacy groups on the ground during the mahi. And then he names a whole lot of things that have been working away, but it's all fallen on deaf ears. And then he says, the Atapuna did not sign Titiriti o Waitangi for Whanau to be in care, incarcerated and continually traumatised. No, they didn't. They signed it from contemporary accounts to establish law and order. And that would mean people who offend being actually incarcerated to keep law-abiding Maori safe from those who wouldn't follow the law. They knew what they were signing. They wanted law and order. They didn't want a warring tribe coming and knocking them on their head and their wives and their children. Mr. Waititi says the time for change is well overdue. This is a by Maori, for Maori, according to Maori's solution, and we will not compromise. What does that even mean? Is he going back to pre-1840 Maori justice? Seriously? And again, I make the point, who comes under that system? Has anyone asked him? Can I go under the marriage justice system? What if I'm attacked? What system do we go under? What if I attack a marry? What system do we go under? What is it? How does it work? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, um, we won't see any tough questionings of Mr. Waititi about this, and this will be away. We're going to have a parallel justice system by Maori for Maori. 
without any detail about how, how it's working, but from their policy, half the police, half the corrections money will be going to a Maori Justice Authority. Well, ladies and gentlemen, good luck with that. Because can you imagine government setting up a new authority that's going to dispense justice outside of the tradition of that colonial system that actually Mr. Watiti's Tapuna signed up for, knowing exactly what it was. And they signed up for that because they'd had enough of the marriage justice system. They wanted the colonial justice system. That's why they signed the treaty. You can send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at radicheck.radio. That guy is a, looks to me like a pam, pampered clown standing as in our parliament because that's clown stuff and it can't begin to work. And it's sad, really, because there's so much work that we need to do. There's so much leadership needed and suggesting to Māori that we can have, or to anyone, that we can have a parallel justice system with the Māori Justice Authority based on Māori justice, Māori for Māori by Māori, where Māori get to judge Māori, and what whiteies get to judge. Doesn't be thinking about. There you go. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, RadleyCheck.radio. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Oh, my goodness, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a show. Oh, how much did I enjoy Liz Gunn and Steve Oliver? So much. Um, that just warms your heart that people are standing for our great parliament. Citizens are standing, not sort of politicians and robots, but citizens standing up for what they believe in. And it moved me, to be honest, talking to them. It was so wonderful. Um I personally think you're gonna you waste your vote for some of the legacy parties. So voting for the small parties is sending a message to me. That's who I'll be voting for, one of the small parties that have standing up for us. Also, Avril Drake, what a story, what a marvelous story. Isn't that empowering that you just decide, no, this is not the way we're going to live. We're not going to live like everyone else. We're going to go out there into the backcountry and learn resilience and to bring our children up strong and capable and able to do things, how to make things, how to fix things, how to repurpose things, how to problem solve and not how to whine and how to demand their rights, but actually live in nature and to look to yourself to survive, not to others. Isn't that amazing? What a, what a great story. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's been lovely to have you along. I do love your feedback. Uh, text me at 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. And I look forward to seeing you back on Thursday. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.